as a kid, I wanted to be a superhero. I wanted to have powers, and I wanted that because I wanted people to admire me for something, I guess. I wanted to be celebrated. When you have full-blown self-expression and there's no barriers holding you back, it's truly powerful. This is Gender Euphoria, a limited podcast series from Broccoli Content. My name is Hannah Walker-Brown, and over the next seven episodes, I'm going to be interviewing people I really admire about when they feel most like themselves, what brings them joy and pleasure, and their individual journeys to self-acceptance. When we only talk about pain, misery, trans people are turned into statistics, and it, it takes the human nature of us away. Being yourself is radical. It's an act of defiance in itself, just allowing yourself to live authentically. In this episode, I'm talking to Asifa. My name is Asifa Lahore. I'm Britain's first out Muslim drag queen. I am an entertainer, a performer, a singer, soon to be an author, um, an activist. That's many, many hyphens. <laughs> yes, I'm a truly intersectional person. And I suppose that's a lot of stuff to keep you busy within your kind of varying communities that you are a part of. How did you become this person that I'm talking to today? Who is this person? My God, what a question to start with. How did I become this person? I'll be totally honest with you, totally by accident. I think I'd reached a point in my life where I was very happy with myself in terms of, you know, I had come out to my parents. I had just entered a civil partnership uh, and marriage with someone who I loved very much. And, you know, up until that point, I think I had like fought a lot for myself and, and for my life and who I wanted to be. And at that point in my life, I just wanted to celebrate. I just wanted to be happy. I just wanted to be joyful. And one night I was out clubbing and my friends basically just said, you know, there's this drag idol competition happening. Why don't you enter it? And to cut a long story short, I, w I ended up being the first Muslim uh, and first South Asian person to enter that national drag competition. And it was that competition where I came third and started my drag career that gave me that title of Britain's out, first out Muslim drag queen. And, you know, in terms of who is Asifa, so you have Asifa Lahore, the drag queen, this sort of... Um, sexy, this sassy Bollywood siren who embodies everything about, you know, the queer um, South Asian experience on stage larger than life. Um, and then you have Asifa Lahore, the everyday sort of trans woman living her life in Britain and trying to survive 2020, survive the coronavirus pandemic, go down to Sainsbury's, get the shopping done, everyday person. And it's really interesting because some people say to me, how can you kind of, you know, who is, who is the person and who is the onstage persona? And all I say to people is, well, 
if you see me on stage, you will know that I'm a very different person on stage to how I am day in, day out. You know, I'd love to wear the sequins and the glitters, you know, down the shopping aisle, but I don't. <laughs> and what are the differences in you, in, in how you feel when you're on the stage, you're in drag versus you going to the supermarket or hanging out at home? When I'm in drag, when I'm on stage, I get to say and be anything I want. In those, you know, 10 minutes or hour long shows, I get to make fun of myself. I get to make fun of people. I get to entertain. And I kind of access a part of myself that I wouldn't normally be able to access without the hair, without the makeup, without the music, without the arts. Um, which just allows me to be fully self-expressed, which allows everyone to sort of be in on the joke and have fun, be entertained, but also comment on, you know, what's going on around the world, um, uh, uh, you know, social commentary, essentially. And then, you know, when I'm there in the shopping aisles, and picking out my fruit and veg for for the week ahead. I'll be honest, I'm very I always I always class myself as a very average normal everyday person. People th I mean people would uh, you know say that I'm quirky and eloquent and and the usual stuff uh, when I'm out of drag. But there is a massive difference in the sense that the stuff that I can say and get away with on stage, I would not say in real life. I think it's just having that, I guess, everyday confidence is missing, I would say, with with the person. You know, I don't, I don't feel as brave as the person as I do as the drag queen. When I'm there with full-on hair, when I'm there with full-on makeup, with, you know, eyelashes to the gods, um, pumped-up lips, exaggerated lips, and when I'm wearing my finest, I don't know what happens, but I feel like a million dollars. I feel like I can conquer the world. I feel like I know that I'm looking great just for those, you know, few minutes or few hours. But it just allows me to harness this power that just allows me full-blown self-expression without holding back. And it's very hard to explain, but that when you have full-blown self-expression and there's no barriers holding you back, it's truly powerful. And, you know, in my, in my personal life, I guess I've been held back so many times because of who I am um, that drag just allows me just to go full throttle and, and not really care. <laughs> and I think what an amazing power to be able to tap into and, it's very rare, I think, to have found something that allows you to step into that untouchable, unstoppable version of you. And I wonder if we take it down now, so bring you off the stage, what do you do for joy in those quiet moments of content with yourself, with who you are, away from, you know, the bright lights in the crowd? Literally, at this time of year, I love just being in a onesie. 
um, you know, whatever onesie that might be, whether it's a, a bunny rabbit onesie, whether it's a Mickey Mouse onesie, whether it's a, um, I'm trying to go through all my onesies now. I've got a reindeer onesie, which I really love. I've got uh, a koala onesie, which I really love. And I think for me, what I love about a onesie is that it's all encompassing, it's comforting, and it's any gender, any person can wear a onesie. Um, and, and it, you know, there's something quite protective, comforting, and a really happy place for me to be when I'm in my onesies. Um, I love relaxing. I love watching television. Um, I love pampering myself, you know, whether that's cooking, yes. like, you know, Pakistani foods, whether that's, um, you know, trying out uh, new recipes, whether that's having an extra long shower with a new, um, you know, exfoliating scrub. Um, it's really the simple things in life that make me really happy. It could also be like gossiping with my mother about the latest gossip from Pakistan and the family uh, and not gossiping in a bad way, but just gossiping about, you know, what, what the latest is of what's happening with that person, what's happening with that person. Um, and, you know, in, a, in an era where I think we're told, oh, in order to be happy, in order to be joyful, we need to be doing such and such, or we need to be doing such and such big, magnificent things. For me, you know, I really get to do that as part of my drag career. I'm really lucky. Mm -hmm. um, so my, you know, for the person living at home and um, going down to the supermarket, it's really the simple things in life that, that bring me joy. It's funny when you said that about um, onesies, I immediately thought of babies, like in baby grows with, you know, the little feet sewn in. Maybe subconsciously that's why we like them because they make us feel safe and protected and cuddled all the time, like when we were babies. You know, I've never looked at it like that, but, you know, um, talking with you, definitely childhood safety there, there's, you know, it's, it's for me it's comfort it is true comfort and I love I particularly love onesies with you know hoods whether that's you know whatever it comes style it comes in but just covering yourself in in that fabric it's just very freeing I find so there's these two very distinct parts to you one is you there on the stage with the eyelashes the wigs the makeup the beautiful outfits feeling like a million dollars and the extrovert, I suppose, that is there to bring joy or laughter or a show to entertain. And then there's this other side that is happiest turning inwards and nurturing yourself and keeping something for you, not giving it away. And I think when you give out so much, when you are entertaining and, you know, inspiring and becoming a role model for others, whether, you know, it's something you set out to do or not, you need that replenishment. Most definitely, most definitely. I mean, it's, I think at the start of my career, I didn't take care of myself a lot. It was just go, 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 go. But I think the more um, I've gone into my career and the more older I've got, I mean, you know, I turned 37 this year. And for me, it's definitely about taking care of myself. And I think, you know, the cooking, the spending time with those close to me, um, you know, the extra long showers, for example, <laughs> uh, the good diet. I think that's all just part of just replenishing 
what I give out there to the world, you know, when I'm performing or when I'm, you know, debating or when I'm, you know, sort of pushing uh, the world forward in, in my own way. I also need to, you know, take care of myself. So yeah, these, these things are subconsciously me kind of taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. So taking this idea of gender euphoria, of finding pleasure or excitement or joy within your body, within your identity, what comes to mind when we talk about euphoria in that way? Um, I, when I started my transition, things just started falling into place uh, for me. Um, you know, when I started HRTs, when I started just, you know, wearing what I wanted to wear, it just naturally brought this joy in my life um, uh, in the sense that I could just be me. And for me, you know, joy, when it comes to my gender, is just being comfortable with me, you know, where regardless of, of, of how I'm looking. I mean, there are some days when I'm like, I look in the mirror and I go, oh, God, you know, I've got, um, you know, I've got a little bit more uh, hair removal to do, for example, or, you know, you, uh, every, every trans non-binary person gets those days where dysphoria kicks in. But um, for me, I think I'm just really happy in celebrating me and being me. Again, I, I, I feel I'm very privileged because, you know, because I have a successful career um, as, as a drag artist, but also, you know, there recently there's been quite a lot of campaigns around those trans people that pass, for example. And, you know, I wish, I wish we can just get to get to a world where we don't need to worry about how we're looking and whether we're passing or whether that's the ultimate goal you know I just want to celebrate being me and for me I find joy in just being me however I'm looking however I'm feeling that day and it's a very individual thing for me where you know some days I don't bother with makeup I don't bother with hair (laughs) as as a trans person um, obviously, I have to bother with it when it comes to shows and stuff. But for me, day in, day out, you know, there's sometimes where I can't be bothered to put on hair if I'm going to Sainsbury's or I'm going for a walk in the park. Um, and there's some days where I really do want to dull myself up. But I think I've got to a very comfortable place where I tune in with myself and ask myself, do I want it today? And if it seems like too much of an effort, let it be. And uh, I find joy in that. God, it's so amazing to hear you say that, that you make your decisions for you. I think so often we make choices based on external validation or because the world is telling us to follow this trend, be that in fashion or body shape or how we climb a career ladder and to just be like, nope, I'm doing this for me it's empowering. I think so. And, um, you know, don't get me wrong. Like, it's hard to get to this point where you're like, F it, you know, F it. F, uh, you know, going, um, uh, putting on makeup. Um, Forget about doing your eyebrows. I mean, I know people can't see this, but today, you know, I tend to shave my eyebrows uh, because it's easier for me when I'm doing drag. And then you have days like this where, you know, I'm half... (laughs) 
I've half got a highbrow and half haven't. And, you know, I should be like getting a black pencil and coloring it in before, you know, going out. But there's some days where I'm just like, you know what, I don't want to do that. I just want to go down to the newsagents or, you know, I just want to just go for a walk. Um, I just want to exercise and I don't care how I look because I just want to be. And for me, there's power in that. There's just power in just being because I think we're told by, you know, by social media, by watching television, by those around us, by society that we have to be a certain way. We have to look a certain way in order to fit a certain label. And, you know, for someone like me who's had to, you know, who hasn't been gay enough or who hasn't been trans enough or Muslim enough or drag enough, I've got to a point where I'm just like, I can't bother. I can't be bothered. I'm happy being me. Yeah, and you're you enough 10 times over and that's what should matter, isn't it? Exactly. But how do you get to that point? Give us the secret formula, the magic potion. Um, it could be the new vaccine. Do you know what? I I think life has battered me so much. Uh, and I say that very lightly. I don't say that, you know, I don't want to, you know, come across as like, oh my gosh, I've been battered left, right and centre. But um, I think life has thrown so much at me. And um, having you know, choosing to deal with all the things that I've dealt with very early on in my life, like, you know, all through my 20s, I was just dealing with the, all the issues that came with being who I was, that, you know, once that had sort of been sorted in the sense that it was, it had been addressed, um, I think, you know, my 30s has all been about celebration and, I've got to the point where celebrating myself comes very easily to me. And it doesn't need to be this whole, you know, let's put um, uh, put yourself up on a pedestal and sing your praises or, to, uh, you know, do whatever um, uh, you can to, to big yourself up. For me, it's simple things like, um, for example, I was so busy in my 20s that I never got the chance to watch Desperate Housewives, for example. <laughs> so a few years ago, I just literally made the time to watch Desperate Housewives. And, you know, it started in, in 2004. And 2004 was when I first started university and started the process of coming out. And um, there was huge chunks of it I missed because of the trauma and everything that I dealt with at the time. So now I've got to the point where celebrating myself is actually going back and not really filling in the blanks but doing the things that I'd never got the chance to do because I was dealing with you know the issues of my life really mm. so for me it's really celebrating myself with simple things uh taking care of myself doing things that I want to do I think I've got to a point in my life where I've realized what works for me as long as I can you know keep my commitments in terms of paying bills, keeping a roof over my head, feeding myself, etc. I can do whatever I want that makes me happy. I think it's so refreshing to hear because I think so often we get caught up in big displays of affection or attention or the celebration of ourselves and probably exacerbated by social media where, you know, we feel like we can only post if we've got something good to say or, you know, we have something to prove. But I think it's kind of quietly revolutionary to go behind the scenes and say to yourself, 
I like you enough to treat you to this pamper session or give you permission to watch Desperate Housewives, you know? It's not for anyone else, it's just for you. And so I wanted to kind of, we're jumping around a bit, but I wanted to ask you about the first time you got up to do drag. And were you aware that then you would become the first out Muslim drag queen? I mean, there's a lot of titles within that, I suppose, each come with their own expectation, like they feel quite loaded. And I wonder how you were able to step off that stage knowing there was this kind of expectation and reconcile all those parts because you are such a multifaceted individual like you so many interests you're so articulate you know you've spoken in the past on um, our anthem series we did about kind of about your disability but also about kind of coming home to yourself and I wonder if you not knew what you were stepping up and into, but once you were aware, how did you kind of reconcile all those different elements or those different communities, I suppose, that you were suddenly representing? Wow. Um, So when I did step on stage, obviously it was as part of a competition and I went on wearing, you know, a rainbow coloured burqa, which I ripped off to, you know, um, a a Lady Gaga song. Um, And all hell sort of broke loose during that competition because during that competition, judging panels were divided as to whether I was doing whether it was original, whether it was racist, whether it was offensive. Um, and it just started all those um, conversations, really, that I had dealt with in my own life up until that point. So even though for me, I was celebrating myself because I'd got to a point where I was like, OK, I'm happy with who I am. Mm-hmm. Let's celebrate. It kind of caused a lot of, you know, um, especially in the LGBT cabaret community, it just caused a lot of um discussions shall we say uh, and uh, you know all throughout the competition even though I did well it was very much like should this be allowed is this offensive and I would be I'd have to argue with the judges and go of course offensive to who exactly mm. you know is this uh, and I would they would say oh isn't this offensive to Muslim communities I am Muslim I am this I am that so for me um uh I, I didn't expect to um, have to defend myself so much, but obviously, you know, being given these titles, uh, you know, going on to sort of do, I think it propelled me to do much more activism, uh, mm-hmm. both within the LGBT community and, and beyond and, and in Muslim communities too. Um, and, you know, I wasn't ready for that, but um, I think the way my life has has panned out is, you either grab those moments and those opportunities when you can uh, and push, try and push those boundaries as much as you can so that whoever, you know, comes after you, whoever, you know, if an Asian person or a, a Muslim person enters that competition again, they don't get so much um, bullshit basically thrown at them. Um, so, yeah, I... 
no, I wasn't prepared for all these things that came after that competition. You know, I'm talking about debating whether, whether it was okay to be gay or Muslim on BBC Three Speech or taking part in, in Muslim Drag Queens on Channel 4, that documentary. Um, but I, looking back on that first drag show, I think it was great a great training ground for what was to come, really. <laughs> And just off the back of that, because you have been BBC Three, Channel Four, multiple podcasts and talks like this even today, and you became a, a voice and a face for many different communities, a lot of people looking up to you and listening to you and, I guess, needing you to be in spaces that they weren't. And I think with anything like that, you know, you can never really prepare. And so I wonder where you felt supported and where perhaps you didn't throughout all of that. It's interesting because I obviously had no experience of the media before, you know, the BBC free speech debate and the Channel 4 documentary. Um, and... At the time, you know, I was supported by both production companies mm -hmm. um, in terms of my safety and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, God, the death threats and everything that came with being one of the first people to really challenge the status quo within my community uh, was difficult. Uh, very, very difficult, actually, at the time. But I did get like, I got practical support, um, you know, via both broadcasters and both um, production companies. But I think what I didn't prepare for, or I feel maybe I, I wasn't supported or, or I didn't support myself around it was how my life would change, you know, how much I would have to give to my audiences, to the world really. Uh, I, I, I don't think I quite understood the magnitude of, of firstly what was happening to me and secondly, what I was taking on, mm. um, you know, massive responsibilities of, of representing, you know, all these communities and, and in many cases being, you know, the only person of colour in certain spaces or the only queer person of colour in, in certain spaces. And also, you know, I've always said, I don't have the answers here. I'm not, you know, this miracle person who, who has all the solutions and answers for everyone. It's, you know, what has worked for me in my life works for me. It might not work for everyone else. And um, as time went on, I learned how to, you know, when to take a back seat, when to let other people from the community to, to raise their voices or, or to push them out there into the spotlight. Because this issue isn't just about me, you know, being queer and Muslim um, and a person of color isn't just about me, it's about so many other people that it impacts. And I'm talking about allies as well. Mm. So, you know, I've learned really much to take a back seat, to, to take care of myself and also give opportunities to other members of the community, you know, whether it's other Muslim drag queens, whether it's other gay Muslims, whether it's Asian allies, for example, because sometimes when you are getting all, all the emails, when you are getting all the offers of, of opportunities that come your way, it's like, I'm not the only person here. There are so many others that have points of view that, you know, should be heard. Mm -hmm. So I think that's sort of what I've, what I wasn't prepared for and I've learned along the way. It 
it is a responsibility and, you know, being able to kind of open the door for other people, but then letting them walk ahead or, you know, you're in the building so you can crack open another window and someone else can jump in. And I don't want to assume, but I wanted to ask you what your, (laughs) this is deep, your, what do you think your life purpose is? What do you think you are here to do? What's that thing that propels you forward to do the work that you do? Wow. I think my life's purpose is just to be the best to see for Loho I can be. That's my life's purpose. And I think what propels me forward is injustice and people, you know, not having their voices heard, not having their talents seen and not really being appreciated uh, for what they put out there and who they are. That really drives me because, you know, life shouldn't be just seen or shown as one thing or one way. There's so many other ways of, of living life. And I think queer people know that anyway. I think queer people of color know that in so many different ways, which, you know, are yet to be seen by the wider world. Asifa, thank you so much. Is there anything you want to add to close? I will just end this by saying that, look, no matter what life throws at you, never give up on yourself, never give up on being yourself. And there will be times when it's the last thing you want to do. There'll be times when you will want to give in. But if you give up on yourself, you're giving up on life. And that should be a no-no because you are great as you are.